everyone. I'm so excited about this podcast because I get two level winners at once. Hannah Otto, formerly Hannah Finchamp of Pivot Cycles and DT Swiss. Hi, Hannah. Hi, everyone. And she is, this is the same, uh, her name changed, but this is the same host that's been here for a while. So having a host win Leadville is so freaking cool. Um, and then we have multi-time Leadville winner, Keegan Swenson of Santa Cruz Bikes, who's been on the podcast many, many times. You're almost a host, Keegan. Getting there. Hey, guys. Yeah. Hi. And then Keegan also decided to do another race the next day, Steamboat Gravel, and just win that race too, because Leadville alone was not enough. And we were going to talk about... Mm, maybe just my feelings. I would, I would hate it if you did Leadville and then you beat me in the next race. Like when I was fresh, that would be, that'd be hard on my, uh, personal ego, but we'll get into that. So the format we're going to do on this one, because this is a different podcast. We're going to go, uh, we're going to interview Keegan about his race and Hannah's going to help me on that. And then we're going to do Hannah's race about how she won Leadville. And then we're going to finish off with, uh, steamboat gravel. And I think there's a little controversy inside of that one too, that, uh, maybe we can get Keegan to, to speak on. Um, if not, maybe I will, we'll see. Okay. So Keegan Leadville, you came in last year, you won. How much did you win by last year? Uh, I think nine minutes, nine minutes. Okay. And so coming into this race, were you, how, what were you considered? Were you considered a favorite or? Yeah. I mean, I'd say I was considered a favorite, but I mean, I'd won it the year before and um, had won the previous lifetime race and a crusher in the tusher. So, yeah. And who was your top competition, uh, coming into it? Uh, I mean, I knew Howard Grotz would be good. He's won by Bill two or three times, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like severe Mullins, always a good climber. And I figured Lachlan Orton would be good as well. And then you have I mean, Russell Finsterwald and, uh, Matt beers who kind of was a dark horse, I think coming from South Africa. I didn't think, I knew it'd be, he'd be decent, but also he's a, he's a big dude and, um, he's not from altitude. So we really wasn't sure what to expect from him. Um, yeah, yeah. he's perpetually done really well at uh, Cape Epic too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, correct. he's won it uh, a couple times and was yeah. on the podium this year. So he's got a big motor. Yeah, exactly. He's yeah. in, go ahead, Hannah. Oh, I didn't hear you mention John at all. Who was second. Was right, he on your I, radar at all? You, Were you aware no, of him? He yeah. wasn't on my radar. I no. figured who's, as much. <laughs> who's John? John who? He is a schema racer. And I like kind of heard about him and I figured he could be good, but I wasn't sure he'd be as good as he was. Uh, I was actually, mostly I was impressed with his descending ability. Like he hung with all the mountain bikers down power line, which was really cool. Uh, and then he was, he finished at a finishing second, which was really impressive. I think he just, obviously he has a massive engine and, uh, He's, he's from Vale or Aspen as well, I think. Um, so he lives really high and he probably spent some time pre-riding and dying the course in. Um, but yeah, super cool to have him cross over from Schemo and pull a sick Wait, result. What is Schemo? It's when they, uh, like, it's kind of like mountain biking, but skiing, you skin up. So you're racing up and then oh. you rip the skins off, ski down. So it's very, very aerobic based. I mean, and that obviously like a lot of fun. most of the events are at high altitude as well. Mm-hmm. And they're long and hard. So. And then do we know John's last name? Uh, Ga- Gaston. Gaston. I'm Gaston. not sure exactly so how to pronounce it, but con- yeah. Congrats, John. Like he may have a career in mountain biking. It sounds like marathon mountain biking with that result. Yeah, for, he very well could um, be <laughs> coming out of nowhere. Okay. So Keegan coming in, what did you learn from last year from Leadville and like that you were changing with your preparation, training, nutrition, bike setup coming into this year? Um, honestly, not much. I kind of did, I had more or less the same preparation. Um, 
more or less the same bike setup. I ran slightly wider tires. I went for the two fours instead of two Two twos just for a little bit more comfort. Uh, What tire? I ran the Maxxis Aspen ST. So it's a file tread. Um, There's not, no, there's really hardly any tread on top. There's some side knobs. So I used that tire last year at 2.2 and found it was, it was decent, but it was a little bit rough on the hardtail. So I went for the 2.4 this year, just for a little more comfort and also a little more flat protection, less chance of flatting. And with the lifetime overall series, I was a little more concerned about flying this year. So I went for also a thicker casing. I went for the 120 TPI versus 170. It's like a difference of, you know, 40 or so grams of tire. So, you know, a little bit of a trade off there, but otherwise bike was the same. Actually, no, sorry. I ran a 38 tooth chain ring this year too. Last year I ran a 36. And well, it wasn't there's, enough. yeah, it wasn't enough. There's some times where I was spun out and I wanted a bigger chain ring. So I decided to run the 38 with the 1052 and yeah, it was great. And then ran the same, more or less the same cockpit setup. I did cut down my bars a little bit, cut them down to 680 from 720, um, just for slightly more arrow and a little more comfortable with the longer reach, longer stem and whatnot. Um, yeah, otherwise no dropper took that off just to save all the weight I can. Uh, don't really need it out there for me. It's like relatively straightforward descending. Like there's a few sections where it would, would be nice, but I figure I'd rather save the weight. So, yeah. And for all those yeah. listening, I mean, Keegan is world-class mountain bike skills. And, uh, I think most people would like a dropper post, especially going down, uh, Columbine. Hannah, did you run a dropper post? I did run a dropper post. Yeah. Um, especially with my shoulder, I knew I needed all of the help I could get with descending oh, yeah, to trauma. be confident and safe. So Keegan, what is, you said the lifetime series grand prix. What is that? Cause that gives context of how you were racing it in your, um, racing Leadville and your equipment choices for Leadville. Yeah. So lifetime grand prix is, uh, the new series this year that lifetime is putting on. It's all of their events. Um, I think, I think it's all their events anyway. So it's, uh, sea otter, uh, unbound crush from the tusher, Leadville 100, Schwalm again, mountain bike race and big sugar gravel race. So there's six events. And so it's three and three, which is kind of cool. I mean, arguably the mountain bike races are kind of gravel races to do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you get to throw out one event. So they take your best five or six. So the overall was definitely a little bit more of a concern this year. I mean, that said, I didn't, I don't, I didn't race Leadville any differently. I still raced it just as aggressively as I would if it was a single event, but I think equipment choices come a little more into play like as with every lifetime race i've been a little more conservative with tires i always run like mm-hmm. one tire like like not no more aggressive but just more protection than i think i need so at crusher the toucher i wanted to run the uh maxis receptor but i was like i'm gonna run the rambler because it has just more tread on top and it's slightly slower but it's marginal and i'd rather have the flat protection so i think it's kind of been the name of the game this year is just being safe <laughs> If you, Do you think ahead, you'll Han. be, if you win Schwam again, so then you have a perfect record at that point because you could throw away Big Sugar if you needed to, would you still be that careful at Big Sugar? Or He got second at Unbound. But first still wasn't in the, in the Grand though. Prix. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. How does that work? Because the guy who won wasn't part of the series. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't like flatting, so I'd probably still run probably still use my refuse just because they're the toughest tire and they're still pretty fast. Um, yeah. Flatting just sucks, especially in Arkansas. I know those rocks are really sharp as we all know from Oz trails and whatnot. So probably still would go on the conservative side. Cause I 
I like changing flats and sitting around. So, and then what, uh, what is the prize for lifetime fitness grand prix? If you do win and it looks uh, like now you're yeah, in so first place, it's 250,000 split amongst, uh, the top 10. I can't remember if that's men, I mean, women in total. Anyway, it's 25,000 to win the series and it pays 10 deep. 10th place is a thousand. So pretty good. Great. Payout. So you get 25,000 if you win this series. Therefore, that's right. why it's important in this race. You might have a few Watts sucked up and get second. That's way better than getting 25th in this race because of, uh, right. a, you know, a huge sidewall gash or something like that. Exactly. And the way these races, they're, a lot of them are pretty long and, um, normally you're not going to like, I didn't lose unbound because my tires were heavier, you know? I lost it because of poor tactics in the last few K and not having quite as good of a sprint as Ivar. So the tires had there, those, there's there no excuse there. So you start so. Leadville. It starts really early in the morning. And, uh, are you carrying a hydration pack at, at all during this race or just bottles? Uh, no, uh, there's plenty of feed zones and you're allowed to have support at three, three of them. Um, so I started with two bottles, um, planning to try and finish, as much of them as I could before getting to the pipeline aid, which is the first aid station, just to try and get ahead of it, especially at altitude, you're, you know, burning a lot more. Um, hydration is a big, big factor. So started with two bottles, picked up one at pipeline, picked up another one at the bottom of Columbine, and then finished that bottle at top of Columbine, picked up one at the bottom, and then picked up another two at pipeline to get, to get back home. And then I had like half bottle left at the bottom of power line. Well, I saw one and a half. So I, I just chucked the other bottle, um, just so I didn't have to carry it because I knew I didn't need it to get the finish. So, um, were you aiming yeah. for a certain uh, grams per hour of nutrition? Like, how did you, what did you do for your food um, during this race? Yeah, I mean, I was only uh, gels and drink mix. I used a never second stuff. Uh, I was aiming for about 120 grams an hour. So mm-hmm. I had slightly more than that if I drank and ate everything I had, but you never finish everything that's in your bottle and you never really finish every little bit of the gel, right? So the gels are 30 grams of carbs, but you might only get 25 or whatever out of it. Um, so yeah, I was aiming for that and yeah, no solid food, really nothing else. Kept it pretty simple, light, lean. What's really interesting yeah. in what you just said is that 120 grams per hour. We've seen in research before about it being limited to 90 grams per hour with a um, two to one ratio or one to 0.8 ratio of glucose to fructose. And we actually have another podcast. We actually sponsored a study um, to see if people can intake more than 90, like totally on brand uh, for trainer own and myself, like how many carbs can you take in? And we have an ask a cycle or um, the science of getting faster podcast with the results of that study coming out soon. Um, so subscribe to that inside of uh iTunes or wherever you look at um, podcasts, Spotify too, and listen to it. It's really interesting. And I know anecdotally, uh, Dr. Poltergar, who worked in there, he works with Bora Hansgrove too. He sees lots of top pros at 120 per hour or even more when they're racing, which is, I think, super interesting. And Keegan, did you have to train your gut to get to that high, 120? Yeah, I mean, it definitely took, it took a while to train myself to handle that much. I actually started ramping up the carbs before I did the, uh, the white rim FKT last, last spring. Um, just cause it's most efficient to carry, you know, just gels and water or drills and drink mix. So I just took me a couple of months to build up to that. And, um, 
yeah, so it took a while, but it definitely works. You, you just can't jump straight into it. And even when the season starts again, I feel like it takes me a month of like training my gut again in order to handle that many carbs. Wow. And that's I, a, go ahead, Tana. Oh, I was, and I'm guessing you ate pancakes for breakfast. Yeah. Pancakes for breakfast. I'm yeah. curious to know if you changed anything about that or the quantity that you ate just because at altitude it can be really hard like it suppresses your appetite and so it can be really hard to eat and then when you're eating at 4 a.m or whenever you ate it's also really hard to eat but for Leadville like you can't afford to eat less just because it's uncomfortable so did you change the amount or toppings or anything to make it more appetizing for you or just like put it down Uh, I mean I just I mean, I just force it down whether I want to eat or not. I try and make it as simple as possible, like especially those early mornings when you're starting and you're, you're cutting it kind of close, right? You're waking up at 4 or 4.30 and you're racing at 6.30. So just pancakes, maple syrup, no butter, no no peanut butter, no like fruit or yogurt, just like just straight carbs. Um, and that seems to work the best if you drown them in enough maple syrup. It makes them really easy to eat as well, a little softer, a little easier to chew. Just uh, kind of slip down your throat. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, – I guess we'll get onto this later. But for steamboat gravel, I just had a, a Costco muffin for breakfast because that was just the easiest thing I could think of. And I do it a bunch of training and it works fine. So, yeah. What, uh, how long before the race started did, did you try to eat your pancakes? Uh, about two hours. I was up at four o'clock and was probably finished eating by 4.30. What about caffeine so, intake? Did you do any of that? Uh, yeah, I had let's see a couple cups of coffee. And yeah, that's about it, I guess. I'm not like for those longer races, I'm not like I don't overdo the caffeine before the start. I think, uh, you know, you can overdo it, especially early. And, uh, like for at XCO, I would have, you know, probably 300 plus milligrams of caffeine. But I think for these longer races, you don't need to be that, that G'd up and ready to go. You know, <laughs> you got to be a little more patient, especially at altitude. You can't be taken off that hard. So, you know, it's almost like a governor. You want it to be, you want to go slower at Leadville because it's such a long race. Right. Like you have to go fast enough to make the front group or whatever. And but you don't need to go any harder than that. So Keegan, can you tell us a little bit about what your thought process was on the start line? Like, what were you thinking? What were your final thoughts going through your head before the race? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is I was just thinking about my pacing for the race and how I wanted it to play out and where, what I was going to do. Um, and obviously the first start of level, it's pavement for the first, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 minutes or so before you get to the dirt. And this year it seemed like it was a fair bit faster than last year. It was like, you always gotta make sure you, I mean, you know, you gotta get those starts can be a little, little dicey. So it's nice to stay as far to the front as you can. Um, and then obviously it, it pinches down to, uh, to like a two track. So I was trying to be near the front without taking too much wind. It's always like a bit of a balance, you know, sometimes it's, it's easier just to take a little bit of wind and deal with it than it is to you know try and hide it and try and get straight to the front before you get to the dirt um so yeah that was kind of my mindset there it's always just get into like tunnel vision and focus on the task at hand i guess and, and what was your biggest concern um just because i feel like for someone like you a lot of people probably think keegan's not worried about anything on the day was there anything in your mind that you were thinking if this tactic happens or if I feel this way, then it's going to be a tough day. Were there any concerns uh, that you had? I mean, honestly, just mechanicals, you know, just really just flats. That was the biggest thing. So down power line, 
you know, I went fast, like fast enough to, to split the group and, you know, break off some of the, gra- the gravel boys. <laughs> but uh, I still was riding fairly conservative, uh, mm-hmm. like was really careful with line choice. And I pre-rode that descent a few times too. So I kind of knew where I could really push it, let it go. And uh, where I couldn't, I also ran, made sure I had enough tire pressure to, you know, that wasn't going to pinch. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's the, really, it was my only concern. Cause if you flat there, you're going to miss that miss that that group along the flats and we hit the bottom of power line we immediately just start rolling pretty hard to make sure that everyone who didn't make that split isn't going to come back so and i knew that's i mean we did that last year and i knew it was going to be the same thing this year so so was it important to you to get to lead the power line descent so that you could hold maintain the pace you wanted down it yeah uh i did i came into the sugarloaf climb first and set a pretty hard pace up that to try and like thin the thin the group out even more going into power line i did the same last year and it worked quite well um and down power line i led and uh it's just i like leading the descent because you can see a little better where you're going and the light's kind of weird and there can be dust and whatever else uh and if anyone want to pass me and go faster like they're welcome to i feel like i was going fast enough you know uh so yeah it's a bit of a balance you were, Keegan. I looked at your file. So everyone knows Powerline is a very steep descent. You actually climb up right back up it afterwards. And uh, it's about a quarter of the way through the race. Um, it used to be like really twisty and turny, but they graded it. And you can just let it fly. And Keegan hit 40 miles per hour on dirt on a mountain bike. And that's what you said. You you split some of the gravel boys off. And uh, t- tell me, um, was there a strategy behind that? And what would make, why would gravel, why would people, gravel racers get split off? I mean, it's a pretty rocky technical descent for, I mean, it's a pretty fun. Like it's, it's not just a fire road, you know, there's a lot of rocks and it's kind of technical in parts. So I think it's really the only place on the course too, that is really technical. So it's a good place for the mountain bikers to, you know, push the pace a little. And, you know, those guys don't quite have the same handling skills as us. So I know last year there's a couple of guys that lost like, you know, up to two minutes on that descent. So like, well, if we can do the same thing and immediately split the group, then like the the group always works better when there's a smaller amount. Like I think six to 10 is always like kind of the optimal amount. Otherwise, you know, you end up with people sitting on and not willing to work and whatnot. So if you get a group of, you know, 10 well, well motivated guys and it's going to roll a lot better. So, and also that next section is very flat, right? For mm, the next hour or so, um, being in a group would be very beneficial. And those people that got cut off, like, they're in no man's land. Like how does that work? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's flat for, like you mentioned, like an hour and change over to the bottom of Columbine. So there's a lot of, I mean, we were rolling pretty hard. It was probably 320 to 340 watt poles or so. So we're rolling, you know, for me, that's like tempo ish. And, uh, that's so crazy yeah, it's here. pretty, it's a pretty fast, it's just pace, tempo. you know? <laughs> so, uh, you don't want to get it caught out. Otherwise you're going to be chasing really hard. Uh, there was a few guys that got their way back on some stragglers. Um, but obviously they had to go pretty deep. So it's works out, still works out in our favor. If they catch back on and they've burned a few matches to catch back up. So, and so when you're in that group going across the flats for that hour, working well together, about how long of poles are you each taking? Um, on the road, we're basically just hitting the front and rolling through. So you hit the wind 10 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever, and then pull off. Um, but then when you're on the dirt, the poles get a little bit longer just cause you can't always, like you can't always just pull off, right? Just cause there could be rocks or turns or whatever. So it kind of just was dependent on the situation. Um, I'd say even on the dirt, they're no longer than 30, 40 seconds though. And was so everyone pretty, pretty quick? And when it, was everyone pretty quick to be willing to do that? 
Or do you find in the men's group, someone usually has to take charge and kind of command, this is what we're doing, and and kind of play police to make sure everyone takes their turn? I mean, sometimes that's the case. But uh, here, everyone was immediately willing to work and get rolling because, I mean, they knew it was in everyone's best interest to get as go as fast as we can and get as, get as big of a gap as we could going into Columbine. I mean, like, for example, like Matt Beers, he's a bigger rider and he like Columbine is probably one of his biggest enemies on this course. So for him, it's in his best interest to make sure we have as big as gap as possible on maybe some of the riders who didn't make that group, like Lachlan, for example, it flatted. So, and he was one of the best climbers in the bunch. So it's in the bigger riders interest to make sure we get to Columbine quickest. And, and then they have a little bit of a buffer, you know? So I think for the most part, everyone was pretty cooperative. So and at that point, do you have any thoughts in your head about wanting to drop anyone in that group? Or are you pretty contented with, this is the group I'm going into Columbine with? Yeah, I mean, the group was good. I don't think there's any reason, like, there's no reason to attack or try and split the group more. I mean, if there was guys that were sitting on and not willing to work, then, like, yeah, I'd probably attack one of the shorter climbs and try and blow it up even more. So then there's a smaller group that will work. Uh, so, yeah, I think... I think a lot of they, they kind of know that too. Like, as if I weren't, if I wasn't going to do that and someone else would also attack, like, I think a lot of us get impatient with that stuff and it just doesn't, it won't fly. <laughs> you have to say about it. So, so now you, you get to the bottom of Columbine. This is the long climb. Uh, I think it took you probably like it was 47 minutes, minutes, I think 47 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So really fast. Took me like, I don't know, a day. And you, <laughs> what you get to the bottom what what this is a uh, like um the group's gonna thin out right like how did it play out i mean i i knew the pace i was gonna ride up columbine my goal was just to ride 320 and 340 up the entire climb so i just immediately started riding that pace at the upper end of that zone um obviously there's a little more oxygen down at the bottom so i figured i'd ride the upper end at the bottom and then maybe slowly drop it down as you go up uh and the group split pretty quick um there's we kind of pause you there like so your normalized power was 328. Your average power was 326. How did you know that 320 to 340? Because you've like nailed it right in the middle within two watts, um, which is pretty insane. And I look at your file too, and um, we can show this Maxine on the screen later, but you got the, your power goes down because the elevation is higher and that's very natural. So the RP stays the same, the power goes down and, but you right. like built into your strategy and how did, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I just knew that's what I could do. Like that's, like sure maybe i could push a little more if it was like a, a, a hill climb tt up columbine i could do 350 or 360 whatever but in a race that long i knew that was like the zone i wanted to ride and i was like if i'm not you can't really attack at leadville right like you can't put in like you know a 500 watt attack and you're just going to explode it just it's suicide so the best way to to do it and if you want to go fast is just to ride the pace you know you can ride and it seems like that's what most most guys did is like okay here's the pace i can ride and maybe a few thought they could try and ride with me for a bit and try that pace and maybe it didn't work um but i found that that's the most effective is just ride your race you can't but you know but the that the number did you look at like what you could do at elevation or what you could do at home and then do an offset or based on what you did last year how did you know it because elevation that messes people up right uh, I kind of looked at last year's data and then um, just kind of went off other markers, like how the power I wrote at like mountain bike nationals and kind of how I was feeling. And 
in theory, I figured that's what I should be able to do. So I figured I could do it. Uh, it wasn't like I'd never, I didn't like go Leadville and like pre-ride and be like, Oh, I'm going to do three thirty up this climb and see how it feels. It was just talk to my coach and he's like, yeah, you can do that. So that was the plan. That was every climb. I just tried to ride that same pace. Uh, obviously the shorter climbs, you can push a little bit harder, but for Columbine and power line that I did the same pace on both those climbs. So and talk a little bit about how when you get towards the top, I think they call it the goat trail. It gets a lot narrower. There's kind of some chunky rocks. There's some off camber. I mean, if we're being honest, most people walk that section. So for you, is there any change to your power in that section as you're trying to balance? What is your cadence like with a 30, what well, you said, 38, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is Is it just pretty standard for you or is your cadence getting lower and, and things like that? Yeah. So when you get up to that kind of Rocky, the goat trail bit, uh, my strategy changes a little cause there's, as you know, it kind of like it'll kick up and then it flattens out. And there's actually even a little descent there. Mm-hmm. So on those little descents or when it flattens out, I just take it super easy. I'll drop down and ride like zone two, like 200 something Watts or whatever for the 30, 30, 40 seconds and try and drop the heart rate and get everything under control. Cause I know, when you get up into the rock, sometimes you're going to have to go above that zone. Like you might have to actually, I might have to push up into threshold for a, you know, a minute or two to like maintain the pace and maintain the good cadence with the 38. So that's kind of built into the planning a little bit is like, make sure you rest a little, drop the heart rate and spin the legs out and then get ready to, to make the final push up to the top. Cause there are, you know, like you said, there's rocks and whatnot. If you mess up then it's a rough time. I was using road pedals too. So I didn't really have an option to get off and walk. So yeah, you uh, do that on purpose, right? You're like, I'm, yeah, this is what just, I'm doing. You burn the bridge. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not walking. That was not an option. And if I did walk, uh, then I guess I was going to be punished. I was in road shoes. So for those curious, Keegan started out about the first half of the climb with an average cadence of 80. And at the very end, the last 10 minutes, I think you dropped down to about 73 was your average cadence. Yeah. Yeah. So not yeah, too bad. I mean, considering I, I mean, I wasn't a 38, 52 a little bit, but I wasn't in it the entire time at the top. I was kind of down to the, 42 or whatever the next one down is a fair bit as well. So, so you get to Columbine. Uh, did, did anyone stay with you on this long climb? Did like, what happened? Uh, yeah. Howard and Alexi were with me for Alexi was probably there for the first third. And then I flicked Howard through for a little bit of a pull. Cause there are some flatter sections and it's nice to, you know, get a little bit of a draft here and there. Cause I've done the first 20 minutes on my own and Howard came through and he put in a little bit of an effort over through one of the steeper switchbacks. Like we maybe did, 380 400 for just a second and that popped alexi off and then we continued we kind of backed it down continue with the same pace we had and uh then i kind of did the same thing to howard later on because i knew there was a longer flat section before you get to the goat trail and i wanted to get rid of howard before we got to there so i kind of did the same thing what are you thinking right now in columbine as you're going up uh with only like two three two riders uh yeah i mean i was like this is kind of what i was hoping for like i wanted to if you attack at the bottom no one's going to go with you right if you just go like you do a hard dig then no one's going to go so if you slowly just ride your race then i kind of was hoping everyone would explode on the way up you know they try and come with and 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 die (laughs) uh because then on the way back the groups are splintered and smaller and they're less willing to feel the chase because i had a feeling i'd be i'd be solo on the way back uh so when i saw like when only Howard and Alexi are with me, I was like, all right, that's good. That means there's, I mean, I could see the group further back and everyone, they're all broken up as well. Cause everyone's just riding their pace. 
That's so. so interesting that instead of having the whole, like if you went solo and the whole group came up together, then you'd have a huge chase pack. But if they blow up one after the other, like one of those firecracker things, then there's all these solos and they can't organize to chase you or they right. have to that's wait. That's kind of my for plan. Like the, so yeah. that's exactly wow. what I was trying to do. I like that. And mm-hmm. uh, so on the way down, I could kind of see where everyone was spaced. And I know like all right, everyone, there's huge gaps, right? Like there's only a couple guys that are together. And sure, mm-hmm. on the way back, like they end up collecting. So like Alexi and uh, Howard went solo for a while and then he got caught by Alexi and a couple others. But the group, like it's small. There's only like maybe four, right? And they're all kind of broken from going so hard up Columbine. So I figured I had a pretty good chance of staying away solo. But then if you go down, so for those who don't know, when you descend Columbine, it's you see everybody because it's the same trail. And if you saw a big pack, like, you know, together, then maybe you wouldn't have gone as hard solo knowing that, like, it's likely for them to catch you and you might then change your strategy. Right. So then you're... maybe so then maybe I would just soft pedal for a bit at the bottom of Columbine and kind of like still keep rolling, like right at a decent pace, but kind of let them come back. And mm-hmm. that way, when they if they were to catch me, I'd be fresh and ready to jump in the rotation and keep going. And then you know, I would just counterattack them again going up uh, power line. So there's kind of a few different strategies. You just have to like kind of see how the race plays out and see where everyone is. Wow. Okay. So you're go ahead, Anna. So I'm really curious to know what it's like for you descending Columbine, because for those who don't know, there's two way traffic coming up this fire road and there's a lot of U turns and slight turns. And Keegan will be the first person in this race down it. There's a moto that comes down before him. But it was minutes before you. I saw it come down and waited for you for a long time and thought, no, people aren't going to be ready. So is it really sketchy for you coming down because people aren't expecting for someone to be coming down that early, that fast? Or do you find that people are pretty well aware? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit nerve wracking. I think knowing the motos there, like at least he's telling people that I am coming, even I mean, he had to give me enough room because I did actually oh, kind of sure. start to catch him near the bottom. So it's like this balance because he can't go quite as fast. So it's like this trade off of how close he can be without dusting me out and also without like getting caught. Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, like people know what's going on. I think they're pretty well prepared. The only thing that you have to watch out for is sometimes there'll be like a group and there's like some guy in the back that's trying to pass that group and then like drop back in because he sees me coming or whatever uh, so you should just keep an eye out and be ready there are a few blind turns and i guess you kind of just have to trust that people aren't going to be on the right side so i'm just kind of sending it and it's scary already <laughs> it's like loose over hard uh with no one yeah. there it's scary yeah i mean there are a few turns too where i'm going down and i'm on the inside and i think like the people see me and they think they probably are don't fully trust that i'm going to make that turn because i'm like have my foot out sliding or whatever but, i mean i I think I know what I'm doing and I, I never hit anyone. So I think it, it all works out. That's, that's good. Yeah. It's just keep hit trust, 41 miles. Know? He would hit 41 miles per hour on that gravel road descent. That's, that's scary. pretty quick. Yeah, that is pretty quick on a mountain bike. Yeah. Very quick. <laughs> Hannah, do you have something? No, that was no. okay. So you get down the bottom, you're solo. How do you then decide like the pace for the rest of it being solo? Like does your strategy, does your mindset change? I mean, I knew like based off going down, I could see that there weren't really any groups and I had a decent gap to Howard. I was like, I figured there was at least a couple of minutes to him by the time I got down to the bottom. So I just started rolling. I uh, just got as arrow as I could. And I had a little you know, bar and things on my bike. And I also had bar tape on the, uh, 
on the top so I could drape my arms over and do that. So anytime I was on pavement, I would do that and just get as low as I could. And I figured on the road, whenever it was like slightly downhill, I just put it in 3810. And if I could get that gear turned over at a reasonable cadence, then no one was going to be going faster than that anyway, even if they're in a group. Uh, I also had a skin suit on, so I was pretty quick. Uh, and with pacing on the, like when it was properly flat, I would do 280, 290. Um, and it was slightly downhill. I'd back it off to 270 or so. And then when it picked, picked back up, I'd go closer to 300, 310. And then any of the proper climbs would be back into that 330 zone. Wow. So I kind of had so a pretty good place pacing plan. That's what like, you know, I had this talk to my coach beforehand. I was like, I should be able to, he's like, you should be able to ride that pace on the way back. And if you do that, like they're going to have to work so hard to catch you. They're going to be taking like almost threshold pulls. So they probably won't catch you anyway as long as you have a decent gap so you're focused on not blowing up and just keeping it on steady like a freight train right exactly just trying to keep it steady keep it smooth i mean obviously at altitude you you're kind of riding that line the whole time you're you know bouncing it off the the red line rev limiter uh and also there's also a power line coming too so you have to make sure you have a load in the tank for that and the goal for the race was obviously to win but and then take the record second so i was focused on not exploding and making it to the line more so than going for the course record because i easily could have taken out i mean 96 seconds is nothing over the course of a couple hours right so i could have pushed a little bit harder here pushed a little harder there but i was in my head i'm like well you don't want to cramp on power line and throw all this away so i definitely was a hair on the conservative side you know in hindsight i knew i know i know where i could make up time without blowing myself up too you could just push a few watts more here a few watts more there and then all of a sudden you made up a minute and a half so just a little bit of a balance did you have time markers throughout the course of knowing, you know, if I hit power line at this time, then I'm on pace to set the record? Uh, honestly, no, I had no idea. I just like was kind of glancing at my my Garmin based off last last time I did it, and I was like, I knew at the bottom of uh, the bottom of power line, I was like, well, it looks like I'm a little. We were like, I was about ten minutes faster than I was last year. And I was like, I think I'm close to pace. I mean, maybe in hindsight, it would have been nice to have more of these markers to know, like, I'm on pace, I can back off, or I can push a little harder. But I wasn't really quite that focused on it. I was more or less just focused on winning the race itself. And I kind of had the pace I could ride. I was like, well, if I ride this pace, I get the record sweet. If not, then too bad. I'll have to figure out how to go a little bit faster next year. So you won by how much did you win by? Uh, 14 minutes. 14 minutes. That's insane. And your time was six hours and one second. Although six online. Hours, one second. It shows you pe- over the line at six hours. Um, I know. I, they're timing chips. Something's up. I know. And even your carbon file says it. I don't know what happened when you hit it, but yeah, Hannah? Yeah. I've heard some people say that the course is longer or different now from when the record was set. Do you know anything about you, yeah, that? Yeah. I talked to Todd Wells about that a bit, and it's really hard to compare because we used to go up Columbine. And you would ride all the way out the ridge out to this little like miner's cabin out to the end and then turn around. And it was a true out and back, the whole thing. But now I think it's because of like land rights or usage or whatever. They don't go out there. We just turn around at the top and then come back. So they added in this new section where you can see on, on my Strava file where you go like you split, right? You come down one way and you come back another. And I think it's slightly longer mileage wise. That's why the race is now 105 miles versus 100 miles but it's slightly like less elevation gain and that elevation is not at 12.5 so it's it's really hard to compare exactly I th- obviously i think they got it pretty close 
but it's hard to say whether the old course is faster or not. Maybe it is slightly faster, um, but maybe it's not. I, I don't know. I also know the record was set with a full team, too. So when Alvin Lakata got the record, he had Christian Heineck, Jeremiah Bishop, and a couple other guys like just drilling on the way out, and they also had two on the way back. So I think, I mean, if you had you know a teammate dedicated to just emptying the tank on the way out and then just blow up and finish right you're going to go a lot faster so you have the course record in my heart keegan so keegan he <laughs> wins leadville solo record um and on that course he wins leadville and then he's going to the next day do another six hour race because leadville wasn't hard it took me like a month to come back after leadville so i don't know how you're doing in 20 not, not 12 hours later but let's switch to hannah because hannah had hannah was this the biggest win of your career I think you could say that. Yeah. And uh, Keegan, I'm going to deputize you as a fellow podcast host. Um, So if you're really good, you can replace Jonathan. No, just kidding. Uh, He's he's done. He's out. He's out. He's out. He's been replaced. Hannah, you come in like, what were your expectations and thoughts coming into Leadville? I didn't really have a lot um, for a variety of reasons, which honestly started weeks before um at mountain bike nationals so i've been balancing xc racing and the long races all season long so my lead up to leadville was starting six weeks out crusher and tusher then i had one weekend off then mountain bike nationals snowshoe world cup mount Ann world cup and then leadville all of those being back to back to back wow um, and you stayed totally healthy during that time right <laughs> Not even close. So best laid plans, I knew it was going to be hard. um, And it wasn't even close to best laid plans. At Mountain Bike Nationals, I suffered some altitude sickness there and some other health issues as well. And I came back just completely wrecked. Um, My body was just Beyond that of, wow, I'm fatigued, it was it was pretty much ill. Um, So I spent all week that week basically just trying to get healthy for snowshoe showed up to snowshoe snowshoe went okay it was clear that I was still recovering but I felt like okay I'm on the right track to get better for the next races then I showed up to Mount Sinan and I crashed really really hard uh, at the start of that world cup and I injured my shoulder Um, and when I came back I met with several doctors in the week leading up to Leadville got an x-ray and was informed that uh, based on the x-ray, I have a grade two AC joint separation. So that's what I was told the Wednesday before Leadville. At that point, I wasn't really sure if I was even going to be able to ride because I couldn't lift my arm without it very much pain. You can't um, do a podium like a post-up at the end. Like, <laughs> no. So why even show up? Because I might not be able to do that. <laughs> it's funny because the doctor even said that. He said, but he, he's a great doctor. He's a sports med doctor, so he totally gets it. He said, look, it's going to hurt, but you can ride your bike because it's closed chain, so you're being supported by the handlebars, and you don't have to lift your arm up. That is, unless you win, then we might have an issue. Um, he even said that, so it was pretty funny. But yeah, so, but like Keegan talked about, with the Grand Prix, you only get to skip one event, and I had already skipped Unbound. So I didn't have much of a choice other than to, if I wanted to stay in the Grand Prix, I at minimum had to show up and start. So that was actually Wednesday before the race. That was my expectation. I'm going to show up and start the race. And that's about it. Wow. And then, so during that week, like 
how, how are you training and how early did you get to Leadville? Cause you're going to doctor's appointments and stuff and your shoulder hurts. Yeah. So <sighs> Wednesday after the doctor's appointment, he, the doctor told me you should only do your training on indoor bike leading up to the race. So that whole week I rode on the indoor bike and I showed up to Leadville at the last possible minute on Friday. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I think it was a blessing in disguise because that's the other way that you can do altitude is show up right before. But that's not often in my personality because I'm very meticulous. I like to pre-ride. I like to check the boxes. So it was a little out of the ordinary for me also to just come in and go for it, more or less. And you then you had less training that week, too, by a lot, right? You would have normally have ridden a whole bunch more. Um, yes and no, it was probably, it was maybe less than I would have done because of the situation. But at the same time, I think because it was the fourth week in a row of racing, I was kind of in a place where there wasn't a ton I was going to do in the week leading up to Leadville anyways, that was going to change the outcome. So I felt like working with my coach, you know, it, it wasn't a hugely detrimental those few days leading up. That's what I was thinking is like, you're coming in, you might have some super compensation from like a three week block and the, the crash might've been something that was nice, like to replenish glycogen and stuff. And I think a lot of people go too hard. Um, it's very easy to remove glycogen in workouts leading up to a race. And then if you don't eat enough, you could start low. Um, do you feel like you like, how was your fitness on race day? Yeah, it, well, it's interesting because I think for Leadville, because I've been balancing the XC all season, the way that if you looked at my training just from, you know, extracting six or eight weeks, it would not look like I was training for Leadville. I The last time I had ridden for over four hours was Crusher and Tusher. So in the six weeks leading up to Leadville, I hadn't done a ride over three hours, um, which... I mean, it just goes to show that you can do those things with lower volume. But I think the key element to it is, for me, the volume that allows me to do those type of races is cumulative over the course of my career. So I've put in many, 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 many long rides over the course of the last several years. And that doesn't just go away and disappear over the course of a month and a half. And so a lot of it was also having to have that confidence in, I know what I've done, you know, in my career in these years, and it's going to support me. And that can actually be really hard, even for pros, I think, to be able to stand strong in confidence in what you've done. Because if I mean, I think anyone who's ever tapered for a race intellectually is sitting there going, I know I'm not getting slower. But I also feel like I need to do a really hard workout to prove to myself that I'm still strong. And it's a hard balance. So race morning, what do you, what do you eat pre-race, like a oh, pre-Leadville? Yeah. So, um, well, I always, I also always eat pancakes before the race, but I, I knowing what I went through at mountain bike nationals and having raced at altitude before, I know that it is really hard for me to eat at that altitude. And that's been something that I've struggled with before. And so I always eat pancakes. I always put chocolate chips in them, but I'm sorry, everyone. I don't like syrup. 
And so sometimes it can be really hard for me to put pancakes down. So my secret weapon for Leadville was I sat on the bed eating my pancakes the morning of Leadville with a giant can of whipped cream that I was just individually putting on every bite of my pancakes. This is... um, Sounds great. I I think there's a... (laughs) I don't know if it's correlation or causation, but I think if you eat pancakes, you then win Leadville afterwards. Um, so that's a pro tip here. Yeah, yeah so okay. everyone, whoever eats the most pancakes wins. Hannah, then you go to the start line and you're going to eventually win. But you're are you coming in the mindset of, I just have to start this race and then I can bail out and recover? Or like, what? what is I it? Mean, What's going on? Yeah, I, I mean, as a professional athlete, like you always have hope. So I definitely wasn't standing there expecting to not finish. Um, I was hopeful to put together a, a decent race, but I, I had no idea because I hadn't tested my shoulder at all. So, you know, for the first, until we went down power line, I didn't know where I was going to end up. But because of that, my start line experience was so different than I've ever had before because I wasn't nervous. My whole no thought process and no expectations, yeah. none. And it was just, oh, I wonder if my shoulder is going to hold up today. And for me, that was completely out of my control. And I could s- accept that that was out of my control. And so it was easy just to l- relinquish expectation and anything like that. So we, um, we talked about in the previous uh, podcast about you being uh, Enneagram. What's the achiever? Is it three? Correct? Or I, is it four? Yeah, I think three or four. Three, I think. Hey. Whatever the it is, she's the, yeah. the achiever one. And I wonder if there is lining up without expectations. Achievers might have more stress, more cortisol in their body. And mm-hmm. having this lineup where you're just like mellow and calm. Uh, do you think that um, contributed to how your race performance? Oh, I feel like I know it did. I think that that's been something that has been it's been hard for me to be honest, to overcome is I get really, really nervous for races. Um, and I think just on a day to day level, I exist with greater stress than a lot of people do. And so I've, I've always known that if I could lower that just a little bit, um, that I could reach a greater potential. And so I'm hopeful that now that I was forced into that spot, that it might just be a little bit easier to get back to it again. I think you just crash really hard right before all the big races, uh, have like a broken thumb or something like that. So, um, let's go through the race. You're going, let's, let's jump to, uh, like, where was the first split? Go ahead, Keegan, jump in. I just got to ask what, um, how do you approach that start? Like, I know you're obviously different, like for me, cause I'm racing at the very front, like trying to, I'm okay. Taking a little bit of wind, like it's worth doing that. But for you, are you paying attention to the other women? Are you just like trying to stay as far forward as a bunch as you can? Like I saw Haley Smith was at the very front of the bunch for the most, pretty much all the way until the dirt. So I'm not sure like if you guys approach that differently than us, are you paying attention to them? Or are you just trying to stay safe? Like how do you, I guess how do you balance all that in that, in these mass start events? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would have liked to have been further forward. I think because of my limited expectation, that was the one place where I could have maybe inserted myself a little bit more aggressively because, you know, my thought process is, okay, I'm not going to finish in the top 20 of the men. So I don't need to be there, but it actually Mm would have been really nice to exist there for the start of the race because it was actually 
so hectic. Um, I actually said out loud multiple times at the start of the race the word unnecessary because that's just what it felt like. Like, it wasn't... Yeah, there were some dangerous moments, and I was certainly cautious knowing that if I went down, given my current injury, it was probably the end. So I was extra nervous, but it just felt like people were being really unnecessary. There were some narrow parts where it went across a cattle guard, and people were slamming on brakes and sliding out. I think there was one pretty significant crash um, from somebody at the start. So that is a place where I would have liked to have been a little bit further forward. But what I think is actually the most important part of that start for me is remaining really calm because Mm -hmm. I found at least in 2021 when I raced that just that nervous energy of where is everyone what are they doing where are we going can I get further up can I pass five people like you're just burning calories that you're never going to get back yeah Keegan don't you have something where I think you're really good at almost shutting your brain off you're like altitude doesn't exist this sort of stuff, like that mindset, do you, do you worry when you go in your race? Uh, honestly, not, not really. I'm pretty good at just like tuning out and just doing like focusing on the task at hand. Uh, but it's like a little bit different when I know for me, like I'm not, like, I really don't care if I have to take a little bit of wind, I can roll up the side. Like it's not that big a deal, but I know like for Hannah, for like smaller riders and women, like they don't, they can't like just waste energy, right? Like, like that in a bunch. Right. So I guess it's like, it seems like it's a total different, like totally different strategy in a sense. Like you kind of have to stay to the front, but you also can't afford to just like ride into the wind and like do like your threshold for first 15 minutes of the race. Cause then it's over. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, and it's a totally different race. I mean, it's probably the similar, similar to unbound these other mass start events, but this one, obviously it's even more important to not go over your limit early. So it's, so I'm curious how you approach that. Yeah, how did you approach that? Yeah, like I said, I I just focused on myself and staying safe, honestly. Like for the first, I mean, and all the women get swallowed up to start with anyways. So, I mean, when we actually hit the bottom of the first climb, I had no idea what place I was in. And I was fine with that. My goal was to get to that first climb safely because even if I lost 30 seconds on a woman in that initial part, I didn't feel like that was going to be the difference in the race. And so my goal was to get to that climb, get through the first five or 10 minutes of that climb, and then it's spread out enough where I can actually make an assessment. And then that's when I start really executing my own race. Uh, Hannah, my takeaway might be, in the past, maybe in this race, you were more present, like just be in the moment and work on execution rather than outcome where before the outcome maybe made you nervous and you wasted so much extra energy with cortisol itself, but actually like physical energy moving around and jittery, uh, even on the bike, could that be a takeaway for trainer and athletes in a race, be present, work on that execute, like the execution rather than the outcome? Absolutely. I think a race like well, all races, truly, but especially a race like Leadville, you have to be entirely present because you also don't know. It's like, it's such a long race that if you try to anticipate what you're going to do two hours from them, from then, you might not even be in the same, feeling like you're in the same body. Your body might be in such a different place at that point that it doesn't matter what you anticipated or guessed or hoped for at that point. 
all you can do is manage your energy exactly in that moment. So I agree 100%. So what happens now? You, you're going down power line. Is there a group? Um, yeah, yeah. So Alexis started off the front uh, pretty hard at the start. She set a fast pace. And based on my experience in 2021, I felt like it wasn't wise for me to chase that because in my opinion, the race doesn't even start until Columbine. So I consciously took note that she was up the road, but didn't worry about how much or how fast she was going. And then just sort of naturally a group of us all settled together. So it was me, Sophia, Sarah, Rose, um, and Aaron Huck on there a little bit at the beginning as well. And so that's we, a big group. It was a pretty that's big like, group. I mean, yeah. no, but I mean, I mean, like for for race outcomes. Oh, yeah. Like, right. Like yeah. national champions and, and Cape Epic win. Mm hmm. Yeah. So we had a pretty good group and pretty good. I, yeah, <laughs> I felt, I honestly felt really relaxed though, which was, that was my biggest takeaway from that start of the race was just acknowledging this is the pace and it's comfortable for me. And so that was probably the first like injection of happiness that I got on the day of, wow, like this pace fits me. Um, and as we started up, what's that next climb called St. Kevin's and then Sugarloaf? Is that what it is? Yeah. St. Kevin's is the first one. Sugarloaf. Yeah. Then, okay. Yeah. So as we started up Sugarloaf, um, <clears throat> Sophia got on the front, she set a little bit faster of a pace. I followed her wheel and then, uh, Sophia and I crested over that together and the rest had sort of strung out a little bit. And that was sort of my moment going down power line where I would know, how my shoulder would hold up for the day. So Sophia had a great descent. She got significant time on me there. I definitely descended extremely cautiously. I was very, very nervous. But when I got to the bottom, Rose and Sarah had caught back on and Rose actually said to me, well, that was it, Hannah. Looks like you're going to be okay today because that was the hardest part of the course. And it was very true. So um, Sophia was, I don't know, maybe a minute up the road. We could see just like her Jersey every now and then on that flat pipeline section. And Sarah Rose and I were in a group chasing. And now Keegan, Sophia is your girlfriend and that situation we talked about before. She might not want to go soul the whole with like the whole race with a, a strong group of women right behind her. Did she ease up? Did she want to get caught? Well, I think. I mean, for them, it's a little bit different because there's also like men that they can potentially oh. catch or get caught by. So Sophia might have been banking on like either catching some guys that got spat out of the men's group or maybe getting caught by, like she mentioned that like TJ Eisenhart and some other guys had like caught the heads and issues maybe or flatted or whatever on power line had caught up and they were, and then she would be able to sit on their wheel for a bit until the pace was too high. So I think like the women's race, they can risk that pacing strategy a little bit differently, like in the sense that there's like not always someone to ride with, but you're more likely to end up riding with someone than you are like in the men's field. If you go off the front, there's no one there. Right. So with them, there's like the chances of them running into someone out there maybe are a fair bit greater. And at least like the men you can sit on, even if it's for a few minutes and rest and then, um, keep going. So that that's a good point. A good point is that in this race, it's mixed. Everyone starts at once. And right. anyone can draft against anyone and there's mixed groups all, all the way through. So that strategy yeah. of, and that's like, that's what Sophia did at unbound and it worked great there. Like she was in the main bunch for, she was still there up until I think like mile 60. So like, it, and then there was, there was no other women left in the 
group. So if you can ride that men's train as long as possible and then just ride, like end up racing with the, the men who gets fat out of the group, like it can work out quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just depends on the race and how it shakes out, I guess. But. Okay. Hannah, you go to the bottom of Columbine. So you're in the flat section. I guess the group stay together. We stayed together. Um, we actually, Sarah and I stayed together. We got a very small gap on Rose and we ended up catching Sophia, um, just a couple miles before Columbine. Okay. So you go into Columbine. Mm-hmm. What's you guys are working what's, like pretty evenly together. Pretty evenly together. Yeah. Like you mentioned, we also had some men in the group. And so, um, we were able to, it's always an interesting negotiation because it's like you watch every woman to make sure that every woman works evenly, but then Mm -hmm. the men, we kind of just let them do whatever. So we don't quite have the same rotating pace line, I think as often, but I think every woman is extremely aware of how much the other women are working. Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. So what are your thoughts at the bottom of Columbine? You're in a group of what sits three women right now? Uh-huh. And then I got my feed and I was told that Alexis was three minutes up. So I knew that's how far up she was on Columbine. And so at that point, I I had pretty much been in the exact same position in 2021. And so I still wasn't really all that excited or anxious about it because I had been there before and it wasn't I mean, I was fourth. It was a good day, but it wasn't a miraculous day. And so I knew that the result of the race was not in any way cemented yet. Um, So Columbine to me was going to be a really big test to see essentially who was going to be the best climber on the day, which I felt like would ultimately be cemented in Powerline. But that but Columbine would be the moment where we would see who was going well. And so Sarah and I started up Columbine. It was actually a really cool moment because she was really motivated to catch Alexis. I was really excited about how I was feeling. And so we were really egging each other on, actually verbally saying, like, we're going to catch her. We can do it. We're going to catch her together. So we were pretty motivated to work together. Um, But maybe 10 or 15 minutes in, I just looked back and she was gone. And so I was now on my own. Sarah had fallen off the pace and that was pretty shocking to me. And that was a pretty good indication to me of, Oh, I'm, I'm going pretty well today. And so that's when I changed from focusing on the people around me to, I actually just looked down and looked at what power was doing at that point to have dropped her and thought, okay, well, if I can maintain this, then it's very unlikely that she will catch back on. And so I focused on that power. I felt comfortable at that point. I focused on maintaining that. And that was all I thought about going up Columbine was just, you have that power. Like, did you have a plan going into Columbine? Like you can ride X amount of Watts or whatever. Or was it just like, you were just trying to go by feel or how did you pace that? Yeah. I mean, I, both. Um, I didn't have a plan of, of this is the power I'm going to do because I feel like at that altitude, it can fluctuate so much. But I also had a range in mind where I knew, you know, if I'm at my Utah, I can't say sea level, but if I'm at my threshold that I usually do at home, we're too high, (laughs) you know? Um, 
so for me, going up Columbine, it was about 200 watts. So that's what I was focusing on holding going up Columbine. And I just focused on holding that until I turned a corner and suddenly I saw Alexis's jersey. And I w- had not been on the hunt at all. So it actually took me aback and I took inventory and suddenly realized it is very, very likely that I just set the fastest time on Columbine for the day. Um, did you see her before the goat trail bit? Or was, where did you, cause I saw um, you guys on my way down and I saw Alexis was still leading mm-hmm. and you weren't too far behind. Um, but that was before, I think that was like one switch back before you start the, the steep bit. You know where it splits, where yeah, you come where the down, descent comes back in. That's when I could see her. Was when okay. we hit the split. So you still had a fair bit of climbing left, another mm-hmm. twenty yeah. some minutes, probably. Yep, exactly. About 20, 20, 25 minutes, maybe. And I could see her, uh, but I also know it's steep, so it was still a little time gap. And mm-hmm. I just decided I'm not going to get excited. <laughs> I'm going to make it my goal to catch her by the top, not before. And that's exactly what happened. I caught her exactly at the top. Um, We went around the little circular, whatever it is, turnaround, basically at the top together. And then she sprinted into the descent ahead of me. (laughs) And so once again, with my shoulder, I was very nervous, very cautious. And Alexis was riding really well. Um, And she got 40 seconds on me going down Columbine. So after all of that, she got 40 seconds on me going down and... I felt like in many of situations that might have been really frustrating. Oh my gosh, I just burned all these matches to catch up to her and now I just let all this time go and I'm going to have to do it again. But instead the mindset was, well, if I just caught her three minutes on an hour-long climb, 40 seconds across the next four hours is no problem. Um, So I, at that point is when I realized if I play my cards right, I can win this race. What's your descent down Columbine like? Like, are people like back to the same the same thing with the two way? Is it like is everyone expecting? I guess at that point they've had people come by, so they're used to it. Or is they are they are you still like dodging people in the oncoming in yeah. the oncoming lane? Or well, that's why I'm so curious how it is for you. If your mindset is just different and you're less apprehensive about it, or if it is because to me it seems quite sketchy. Maybe it's because maybe there's more people also when I'm coming up. Maybe not everyone has reached Columbine actually by the time you're going down. I, I mean, don't it's still know. A solid. It's pretty much a solid train when yeah. I'm going down. I just feel like we have these, when I go down at least, I feel like there's these big clumps of people. People aren't really in single file lines. It's like they're riding mm-hmm. together. And so I'll come around a corner and there'll just be a little group of people. And so most of the time going down Columbine, I'm being pretty vocal not yelling at anybody, just making myself known. Like, just all the way down, I was yelling, rider, rider, rider. Just because, also, I feel like people are suffering so much on that climb, they're staring at their stem. Right. And, and I that's when caught, I... about racing with yeah. a bell. <laughs> that's when I feel the most sketched out, is when I turn the corner and I see someone just staring straight down. Um, mm-hmm. If we can make eye contact, we're fine. But, yeah, it, 
To me, it's a little sketchy. But it's also a great part of the race because everyone's cheering. And that's oh, not something cool. you often get. So it's also a part that I love about the race. So it's yeah, it is really cool. Everyone's really excited. And it's cool. Like for us, we get to see your guys' race. Like it's rare that we have any idea what's going on in the women's race. So going back yeah. down, you make, oh, there's Alexis and Hannah and Sophia. And I saw Sarah. And like you can kind of gauge how far apart everyone is. You can see how everyone's doing, like who's well, suffering. And it was actually really interesting. funny because when I was climbing up, I was kind of, I was wondering when I would see you guys um, because I saw you. Well, anyways, when I was going up, I was thinking, I wonder when I'm going to see Keegan. I wonder when I'm going to see Keegan. I wonder when I'm going to see Keegan. And then all of a sudden it entered my mind, I guess there's a chance that it might not be Keegan. Someone else could be leading. (laughs) Uh, But then it was you. (laughs) So, Hannah, you're down at the bottom of Columbine. You have about four hours left. You are 40 seconds down. Are you worrying about anyone behind you? I, I'm worried about them in the grand scheme of things because you can see them on the way back. I knew I had a few minutes, so I knew that I was closer to Alexis than the person who was behind me. So I was more focused on linking up with Alexis than potentially sitting up or waiting on whoever was behind. But I also knew that the person behind me was Rose, and she's won this race twice and she's very patient rider and i know that she really excels at powerline in particular so i i was definitely worried about the overall result from behind probably more than actually in front at that point so what is your strategy now so my strategy at that point was to get to alexis as fast as possible without actually going over threshold in any way. So I didn't want to step on the gas and sprint across the gap, but I wanted to not burn a bunch of energy being alone as much as possible. So I caught up those 40 seconds in about three miles. Um, We got together and we started exchanging poles back and forth and we were being pretty consistent in our times. But again, I started looking at my power and I became aware of the fact that I was pulling through it about 40 watts higher than her. So I knew she was hurting. I knew that Did you catch her at like twin lakes dam then. Yeah, pretty Roughly? much right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so we started with those poles. I became aware that she was hurting a lot more than I was likely. And at that point it felt like I had a decision to make. And that decision basically came down to, should I stay with her and go a little bit slower than I feel like I could alone or do it or obviously do I go alone? And the answer to that came down to, do I think that at this pace we're fighting for first and second? And I felt like the answer was no. I thought if I maintain this pace, we will be caught. And so I felt like my only option um, to be fair to myself, to give myself the best chance of the day was to go it alone. And so I put in one pole that was just slightly harder than all the rest and rolled off the front. And by mile 70, um, a moto came by and told me I had 45 seconds on her. And that was the last information I got the whole day. So after that, I had 35 miles with no idea of who was behind or how far. You didn't know where Rose was either. I had no idea. Yeah. Huh. yeah. It's always kind of a 
weird situation to be in. Like when you're with Alexis, you're like, well, I can use her and like stay with her for a while and Rose will probably catch us, but then I'll be fresher when Rose catches us or mm-hmm. you can depart on your own. And yeah. it's like either way, that's like no really perfect answer. You know, yeah. like I've been, I was in that situation last year as well. And like, well, I guess like might as well like use them as long as we can. And like, cause then at least you're gonna be fresher when you go into the climb. So it's always like, I don't know. It's always a bit of a gamble either way, but it's a gamble. Your, your take yeah. on it. Uh, yeah. Hannah, so you, you line up, you're like, I just got to start this thing so I can get the points and then I'll, I'll go back home. And then you're 35 <laughs> miles out and you're in first place for the win at a huge mountain bike race. Uh, what strategy they're on? You're solo. You don't know if anyone's chasing you. Are you looking back? I am. I'm looking back. Uh, at first, at first I was looking back a lot and then I told pretty much stopped looking back entirely until the last 10 miles. Um, so at first I was just trying to gain information by looking back because I genuinely had no idea. And then once I realized I can't see anyone and I started, I started hurting as anyone does. I thought this is as hard as I can go no matter what. And so I asked myself, if you look back and you see someone, does that change anything about what you're doing right now other than making you freak out? And the answer was no. So I just started staring straight ahead, focusing on my power. I just kept telling myself, you've gotten to the front of this race with this pace. If you maintain this pace, it stands to reason that you could maintain the front. It takes so much more effort to bridge across to you too. If you're doing your 200 watts to come across to you, they're going to have to do like 250. Like it's just such a big difference to like overcome that amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's like that attitude is definitely, definitely the right one. So it was that attitude. And then also I had, I had been maintaining a good eating plan, but at that point it pretty much became my massive focus was, am I eating? Am I eating? I felt like at that point in the race, I pretty much, I almost abandoned my original plan and just started eating as much as I could because I thought if I lose this race, it will not be to a bonk. And so that was my next main focus was I will not bonk. Um, And so, yeah, I was just eating a ton, especially leading into power line because I knew that would likely be the crux of the race for me. And what was your fueling plan going into the race? We didn't really go over that as well. Like, did you have like a set plan of what you're going to eat like this amount of gels per hour or like? Yeah, I mostly work on gels. So I was going to eat two or three gels an hour. So that's about 60 plus grams of carbohydrates an hour, um, which is definitely a little bit on the lower end of, for sure, on the lower end of what's possible. Possible, But I knew that that's what I had worked up to and what my stomach could handle. Mm-hmm. So I felt pretty confident in that plan for the day. And what's in, what's in your bottles? Um, so I do one. So I had two bottles at all times, and I had one of water and one with scratch. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm that's a an extra really... 20 an hour, maybe? So you get a, so you yeah. might be... So you're close to 80, 80, 90. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, cause I'm, I've struggled a little bit with liquid calories other than gels because I am a super, super, super heavy sweater, but very low sodium, um, in my sweat. And so when I, yeah. So when I take in my calories through the, 
like concentrated liquids, I then have to chase that with even more liquids and it's just too much liquid for Mm. me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When did you realize when you're like, wow, I'm going to win Leadville? (laughs) I mean, that thought was trying to come into my mind from the moment I took the lead. You know, you start to imagine what that could be like because it's exciting. It's an exciting thought. But I could feel that it was too exciting. (laughs) And so I would very quickly push it out of my mind. And the thought that I replaced it with was, what an incredible experience to know what it feels like to be leading Leadville at mile Mm. 70. And I just, yeah. And I just focused on that feeling because even that feeling was amazing. And I started to think about how few people ever get to experience that feeling of leading a race. Even if they don't win it, they don't get, a lot of people don't get to know. And so I started embracing that feeling and I started then to make the goal. Well, I wonder what it feels like to lead at mile 75. Is the feeling different? Is the feel di- feeling different at mile 80? Is the feeling different at the top of power line? And that was pretty much what drove me all the way to the finish. And it wasn't until I was about five miles from the finish, I pretty much abandoned everything and just started sprinting out of my mind. And I was still quite convinced, just knowing Rose and what a patient and consistent racer she was, I really wasn't convinced that I had it until I reached the final stretch. Yeah, that long, like, that long gravel road, too. Like, you know, I knew I had a big gap, but you're still, like, looking over your shoulder. You're like, you just don't know. Like, it's so far. And, and you're hurting, at least for me. I was, I mean, I, I wasn't bonked, which is what I kept reminding myself. Like, if you're not bonked, then you're not just dogging it. Like, you, they would have to be going so fast. But still, that last climb, I just kept looking at the profile on my, my computer and thinking, Cause that last climb up that, um, it's like the sandy gravelly, like the last three miles of the race hurts so bad. So I was still just like, I still have to get through that. I still have to make it through one more climb. Um, but all is well that ends well. (laughs) When you crossed the finish line and you did win, what were you feeling? Just total elation just complete in total. I think because it, I mean, you're always happy. I think when you win a race, no matter what, but given the magnitude of the race and the fact that, I mean, like I said, I knew it was possible. So it's not like, you know, I knew it was possible, but I definitely wasn't the favorite and it wasn't my expectation that it would happen. So I think I really got, a bigger dose of ecstasy than, than any, than otherwise. Wow. And how much did you win by? I won by five and a half minutes. So if you would have known that there were five minutes back, would you have changed your pacing or anything like that? I don't think so. Um, because, well, for two reasons, one, because I think anything can happen and, when something happens, five minutes isn't that long, you know, if you're talking about having to change something. Also, if you bonk, five minutes isn't that long either. You can go by really fast. Um, but beyond that as well, I think that 
you know, you want to perform your best. And so I'm actually really glad that I didn't know that because I got to eke everything out of myself that I could. Wow. And so Hannah, how are you feeling after Leadville? Like, were you tired the next day? I felt a lot better this year than I did last year. (laughs) Winning helps. (laughs) Winning helps. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, I'm still, so I leave for Europe tomorrow. I'm going to race the world championship, um, in Leger next week. And so my focus right now is full recovery and then getting a little bit of snap and then back to the races. This is a great segue because Keegan finished Leadville and won, and he did not focus on full recovery. <laughs> he went and did, but congrats, Hannah, by the way, this is amazing. Like, it's so cool. You won. Yeah. We do need to go over Hannah's bike. I'm curious, like, oh, yeah, we're like bike. chain ring. Like, mm. I noticed you had a small, like, almost like a gravel dropper on there or something. So I'm just curious if you change anything from your regular hardtail setup for Leadville. Um, Um, it was pretty much my regular setup. So that's just the Fox transfer SL, um, Mm. that I had on there. And then I did have a much, much smaller chain ring than you did. I ran a 32, um, and then a 1051 cassette in the back. And then I think the biggest change I made for Leadville is, more often than not, like in the XCO races, I run a 2-4 tire, but I ran mm-hmm. a 2-2, two, two, uh, a Kenda Rush 2-2 two, two is what I ran. And did you think about riding the full suspension at all with your shoulder? You're like, oh, it's going to be fine. The hardtail, st- it's still worth the wait to ride the hardtail? Or it sounded like I had tested the dually and it was like pretty good still. Like it was actually really nice on Sugarloaf and some of like the faster, like flat stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely wouldn't be a bad choice. I was just curious, like what your thought process was there, like between the two with your shoulder and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, for sure, if it was a normal situation without my shoulder, it was hard tail, no questions asked. Once mm-hmm. I injured my shoulder, it did cross my mind, but I kind of went with the mentality of if I can't at least ride the equipment that I would normally ride, I probably have no business being out there and testing my body that far. And so I, I just went with what I would typically run. You had business being out there. (laughs) It was very much your business. And Hannah, what was your finish time? It was seven hours and 24 minutes. Yeah. So I want to say sub nine is considered fast. And a lot of people, a lot of amateurs are like, what chain ring should I run? And you hear Keegan running a 38 and they're like, Oh, we're going to have a huge one on if you're not doing a sub 26, like a 32 does a sub 26. And there are very, very few people in that entire race that does that. And there's a lot of people around like nine hours or 10 hours are like, should I do a 32 or a 30? You should do a 28. Or, you know what I mean? It's, I, I, I think I had a 20, did I have a 28? I, whatever I did, the lowest I could have in my power meter, but um, I wanted more. For it's sure. a, it is a hard decision because across some of those flats, we actually uh, had a headwind coming back this year. So I felt pretty comfortable um, with my gear ratio. But last year, I was very spun out. Um, but I still opted for the 32 because I know that, I, or at least I feel that the crux of the race and where the race is won is on power line. And I need that gear to get up power line. So mm-hmm. that's how I make my decision on that. So going to Keegan, Keegan, SPT6, what, what is that? 
Uh, yeah, Steamboat Gravel. Uh, so it's a 141 or 142 mile gravel race in Steamboat the next day. And uh, yeah, Lead Boat was this thing that started last year. Um, I did Breck Epic last year after Leadville, and I saw everyone doing Steamboat, and I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. That looks fun. Maybe I'll try that next year, you know? You um, won Breck Epic too, back to back, right? I did. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah. And so you you know you have to do another six hour race the next day with against competitors who did not do Leadville the previous day, and you have mm-hmm. to transfer, like, and you won, and there's like there's duties right after you win. Um, yeah, I mean, you're standing stuff. around interviews yeah. and uh, anti doping, all that stuff. Um, speaking of which, it is cool they have anti doping at some of the lifetime races this year. So lifetime is paying to have USADA show up. They get it unbound Leadville. They could be at the other ones too. So anyway, cool. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so Leadville was a focus. I mean, I was there to, to win Leadville and do whatever needed to be done to do that there. And then Steamboat was just going to be like, whatever happens, happens, right? Like I'm just there to have a good time I'd, like Hannah. and try and win. But I had no, like I had no idea. I didn't, didn't know what the course was like. I didn't know where the course went. I didn't know who was racing didn't even know what time the race started. Like I, I knew nothing. Right. I just knew, I knew how, how long it was. And I'd heard like the gravel was relatively smooth. So I opted to run some really small tires. Um, and just ran my regular gravel bike setup. Same as unbound around the, the stigmata with a 48 tooth single ring and a 1050 mountain bike cassette in the back with the access mountain bike trailer, the Eagle. It's pretty cool. Um, that was cool. What'd yeah. you, what'd you eat between so the two races and how did you sleep? I, as much as I could, man, I had, uh, finished the race immediately had like recovery, recovery shake. And then I put down a bunch of tortilla chips, ate some snacks and anti-doping. And then after awards and whatnot, went over to Sophia's place in Leadville to shower. So we were staying down in copper. So went over there to shower and ate some pasta, some leftover enchiladas, had a Costco muffin and then just kept snacking in the car on the way there. It's about a two hour drive. Uh, drove there and then we had, I pulled an eight trick. I ordered pad thai and I also ordered fried rice. So I had both of those. And then focus was like trying to hydrate a bunch too. Which the nice thing about anti doping is you get to hide, rehydrate when you're sitting there trying to pee. You're dehydrated after the race. So you're just pounding water and electrolyte, whatever, trying to get that done. Um, so I was pretty well hydrated actually. Um, but try to just keep sipping on stuff in the car. And then when we get, when we got to steamboat and we decided to camp in steamboat, they had like just a parking what? lot you camp in because dude, so <laughs> you're sleeping in a tent between these races. No, no, I was in a camper in my truck. I have a truck camper. Like this oh, oh, bed. So never here, mind then. <laughs> so here's my thought. So here's like my, our thought process. So Russell did steamboat last year and he's like, man, he thought camping was super easy. Cause basically you roll into your truck, you park, you pop it up, you get in there and you sleep and you wake up and you race. You don't have to deal with like checking into a place. You don't have to deal with like trying to find yeah. it. Like we were literally camping like a couple blocks from the start line. So you get extra sleep. Um, you can go to bed early. You don't have to deal with like anything. You just roll up, get in the truck, go to bed. Um, so I think it actually worked really well. It's not something mm-hmm. I'd want to do if I was going to hang out for a few days, just cause it's not quite as comfortable, but like you're so, you're so wrecked after Leadville that you're going to sleep no matter what. Sleep anywhere. Right? So you what? climb into a sleeping bag. I don't know. We have a nice, we have a mattress with a nice like memory foam topper. Like it's pretty, 
pretty comfortable. It's not like sleeping in a tent. I wouldn't have slept in a tent, to be honest. I wouldn't do that. But uh, the camper was fine. It was super easy. Parked, popped it up, got in, ate dinner, went to bed, woke up and raced. I want to circle back around to the food that you ate because that is very helpful for sure. And also very impressive, not just the sheer quantity, but I know a lot of people who finish Leadville struggle to eat anything because their stomach just feels bloated, bubbly, and just all around wrecked. Do you experience that at all? My stomach was pretty much fine after Leadville. Um, I think part of it's just with like training, like my stomach to be able to handle that stuff. Like when I do a you know, six or seven hour training ride, I'll eat all sorts of stuff. I'll go to a gas station and lift down like a thousand car, thousand grams, a thousand calories worth of whatever, you know? Um, so I think you should have to train your stomach to be used to that. And I also knew that like you had, I had to eat going into steamboat. And also that was on my mind during Leadville too. I was like, the more I can eat during this race, the better I'm going to feel tomorrow. Like the fir- the less thing. You, you don't get as far behind. Right. So if you can finish the race, having 120 grams of carbs an hour all day, then you're, then you're like less in a hole than you would be. Um, so yeah, the eating was definitely just, I just tried to eat as much as I could. That was really the goal, uh, going into the steamboat. Cause I knew I had a lot. I mean, I did, I think I did like 50, 300 KJs at Leadville, which is huge. Um, and also 57, you're out 57 and then you're at altitude. So I'm burning even more calories just existing. Right. So that's probably like a 10,000 calorie day. Plus you're, metabolism just keeps cranking after the race for a while longer so um yeah just was eating nonstop. we we advocate that for um our uh trainer athletes or any athlete if you're having back-to-back days even if you can finish a workout without food that will impact the next one and i think that's coming from you keegan too at this high level and um it's good for um listeners to hear that so i just want to know how many hours of sleep do you think you got is this like a four-hour night sleep or a nine uh I was probably asleep by 10. I was, I was in bed at nine, but you know, like after the race, I was still a little, so hard little, to sleep after big events. Yeah. It takes a while to fall asleep. So I was probably asleep by like 10 or 10 30 alarm went off at four twenty the next morning. Oh. We pushed it a little bit further, you know, so uh, woke five. Up, yeah, five or six hours, whatever it was, uh, whooped down a Costco muffin, which are pretty ideal. They have like 20 some grams of fat and they have like 70 or 80 grams of carbs, which is perfect. Um, so I had that, I had one cup of coffee and then I drank a monster mango loco, which also has like 60 or 70 grams of carbs. So I was like, just extra carbs, easy, easy to drink. Cause I didn't want to eat more than just that muffin. So, um, kind of easy way to cheat that. And then, yeah, went and rolled over to the start and we started racing at six thirty. So now I don't want to go through every step of this race, but I do want to cover, there was a controversy or something happened. I saw yeah. something on, so, on Instagram. Yes. Yeah, so I uh, was talking to Russell beforehand and he said the race, like there's a, there is, I think there's four or five feed zones, but there's no support. You can't have like a mechanic or a friend there handing you stuff. You have to just like stop and fill your bottle. So it gets a little bit hectic, right? When there's a bunch of like 30 or 40 guys that roll in to one of these aid stations, there's only six spigots. Everyone's fighting over these little things to fill their bottles. You only get water or maybe you get drink mix. I don't know what they have. Um, but you don't know what it is. Your stomach's not used to it. So I was like, well, I think I'm going to race with 
with more. So originally the plan was a race with just two one liter bottles and hopefully make it to like mile 100. Um, and then I was like, you know, what? let's fill the pack up and get it ready just in case I see other guys at the start with packs. And so I had the pack down there. I saw like, um, Terpstra had a pack, 10 Dam had a pack and there was multiple other guys r- with packs on. I was like, all right, we're starting with the pack and we're starting with the two big bottles. So it's, I'll lug around this extra 10 pounds of fluid. It's fine. It's be worth it to not deal with these hectic feed zones. Um, and does that stress you out making that decision that close to the race? Uh, not really. I was like prepared for either one. I was like pretty sure they were going to have packs. I was like really ready to use it. I had it full and mix, ready to go. Um, and it was, I was kind of hoping they would, so I could race with it because then I get my like trick mix the whole race instead of having to fill up with whatever's at the aid stations. Um, so it worked out and it's like, it sucked the first few climbs cause I'm carrying literally an extra 10 pounds of fluid. Like that's, you know, you have to push a little harder to keep up over the, the steep climbs. But overall the course was relatively flat. Like I wouldn't have pulled this, that crusher where you're climbing that much. Um, and then as the race goes on, obviously you get lighter, right? As you drink, drink your water and your, your fluid. So yeah, that was, that was the plan. And obviously no one stopped at aid one, which was only 20 miles in. We all blew through that one. We get to aid two and Pete like drives a pace straight through aid two. We're doing, you know, hit a pack. We had a pack of 50 fully strung out going through this speed zone. And I was like, all right, this is, this is cool. This is what we're doing today. Uh, and we get to Did aid Pete three. have a pack? Pete didn't have a pack. He had two bottles. So he was going all the way to mile, about mile 80 on two bottles, which was definitely pushing it. Um, so... And at that point, the break had gone about 20 miles in. The break had, they only had three minutes at like aid two. But then with the group that big, no one was working and it just wasn't going to happen. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to sit in, just going to chill. And then aid three, I'm not going to stop. We're just going to roll and hit it hard and try. Hopefully this group splits because you can never get a group that big to work. Otherwise, people just sit on, everyone gets jealous and it's this weird dynamic. It's horrible. So we get to mile 77, 80, whatever that feed was. Um, Pete was trying to get a bunch of us to stop. And I was like, well, I didn't carry around 10 pounds of water for nothing. So I'm not stopping. I'm not going to wait. So roll through the feed zone. And there was probably 10 of us that hit the pavement after that. And we just started rolling pretty hard turns um, to try and just split that bunch and try and start bringing down the gap. Because the gap was, it was like eight or 10 minutes at that point, And we only had we were halfway through the race. We only had 70 miles or so to bring back this break, which man, it's a lot of time. 10 minutes is a ton, you know? And I also knew that the guys in the break had packs because I saw them roll away. Uh, and so I knew they weren't stopping, which is a few more minutes at each aid zone if we stopped there. So that was a controversy. Uh, that was what happened. Uh, so we get up to mile Pete and a few others ended up catching us again at like, I think, 105 miles in maybe. And there was like some talk about how the break is gone and we're not going to catch them. Like there's no point in going hard and so on. So I just attacked and was hoping some of the other well-motivated guys would go with me. Um, Ethan Villaneda, uh, Brennan Wirtz, and that was it. Just the three of us went. And then I looked back about 15 minutes later and I saw Russell, uh, Payson, Terpstra, and a couple others come, coming across. So I kind of backed off to make sure they get on. And then I was like, all right, this is a pretty good group. So we can, we can roll this. And then, yeah, we kind of rolled turns and eventually the group got smaller and smaller guys fell off. And then with 20 miles left, 
there was about a two minute gap. So just stayed on the gas and ended up catching uh, Freddie and the last guy who was left because we caught one of the guys in the break. And that was a guy we caught him. Those guys can't be too far up the road. Uh, so once we once we got to the final climb, uh, the bottom of the climb, it said the gap was a minute. So I just pretty much went all in, did like, you know, about threshold up that climb to try and bring him back. And we ended up catching Freddie and the last guy at the very top. So, and then, uh, yeah, that was it. Payson, and then Payson was the only one who was able to go with me when I accelerated to bring back that last minute. And, uh, yeah, Freddie sat on for a while and he almost came off in a few of the, there was like a technical kind of twisty bit before we get down to the pavement. And he almost came off there, but then dragged his way back on. And we were able to talk him into taking a few poles because we knew the group behind was about five big. And they were obviously, they've been well motivated to try and catch us as well. So we traded poles for the next 10 miles or so. And then uh, I just out sprinted them the very last bit right into the cones. So that uh, was, you out sprinted a group of four, it. right? Group of three. Group there were just three of us. It was just uh, Freddie over, oh, Freddie from Legion. And then Payson McElvin and myself. So I want to um, go over some numbers. So at Steamboat, your sprint at the end, you hit twelve eighty five, which is impressive. And this was after twelve hours of racing over the last those two days. It was fifty three hundred calories. So Leadville was fifty seven, and this was fifty three. That's pretty close. Uh, Steamboat, yeah. you're like, oh, it's pretty flat. Nine thousand feet of climbing, and uh, Leadville is eleven five. So I, w- I would. I'm, I would not call that flat at all. Right. And then you the, the climbs, the climbs were a lot more, a lot more rolly. There was no, yeah. there was no climb longer than a couple of minutes. So, right. And you could stay in, um, probably stay in the pack too, in those climbs and have an arrow. Right. Advantage. Were yeah. you hiding a bunch? Yeah. Hit a fair bit. Uh, there was in that the big middle chunk when we were just cruising, I just sat in a bunch and was just doing, you know, 180 Watts or whatever for a long time. Not really push on the pedals too much. Cause there's no reason to No one was going to work. So, I was just trying to hide and save the legs because I knew we were going to have to give her later on. Um, at Leadville, your normalized power was 299, which is insane. Uh, average power 266. That's such a high average power, too, with all like the descending. And SP gravel, uh, um, SPT gravel, you were 276 normalized power and 237. And there was um, someone on uh, Instagram did a power analysis between the two ones. Mm-hmm. And on the second day, your power, all your bests were about 2% lower. Um, when I look at elevation adjusted because uh steamboat starts at like 6700 feet and mm-hmm. level starts at like 10,000 if you adjust it down you dropped about 9 percentage points like um 9 9% on the second day for power and i know it was a different race and you weren't solo and that sort of thing but that's still super impressive um to be that strong after like mm-hmm. transferring and all that like blows my mind so Congratulations, Keegan. Thank you. Uh, uh, what's next for both of you? Hannah, what's next for you? Next uh, besides, is, you're going to Europe. Yeah, the world championship. Yeah. Okay. Um, come in with that same like, oh, I hope I just start. <laughs> we'll see what just happens. Just here to have a good time. Yeah. Woo. Uh, trip to Europe. Uh, Keegan, what about you? Uh, I'll do the Park City Point to Point local race here in town. That's super fun. It's got just 75 miles of Park City single track. Um, and then I'll do Schwamp again and then big sugar. So only a few more left. Great. Well, thank you yeah. two so much for being on here. This is amazing. Again, like two Leadville winners on the podcast at once. Um, really, really good job, everyone. So, um, yeah. thank you all. Thanks. See y'all next week. Bye-bye. Thank See you guys. You.